folks. Thanks for tuning in to the Live Life Progressive Show. Sincere Hogan, that's me. Got Mike Marlowe on the line. What's going on, man? Well, I'm doing good, man. I'm really excited to talk to our guest today. I love his book. We're going to get to him in a second. You guys are going to love this episode. But coming off a fun weekend, it was pretty ex- not not really a great UFC on Sunday, but I really liked seeing Junior Dos Santos back in his rhythm. He looked really good. He was moving really well. I actually bet on Ben Rothwell because I thought that, I mean, the old junior I would never bet against. <laughs> right. But the, the, his last couple, he got knocked out by Alistair. I was like, eh, I don't know where he's at right now. I was like, Ben is a underdog. Yeah, put a few bucks down. And then after the first round, I go, man, I really <laughs> wish I knew this junior was coming in. Because exactly. I, I knew right away he was going to win that fight. He just, his, his footwork was incredible. Especially that's that's called I'm motivated the fact that Kane's not in the picture right now. And also, I think he's been training with the American top team as well. So I think that's been a big help. Yeah, well. so it's, it's just exciting to see someone make such a turnaround in their yeah. career because if he lost this fight, that would pretty much be the end for him. And I yeah, think he realized that. Yeah, the goes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your career is going to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. And then also, thanks for everyone who's been using that coupon code LLA to support the show. Just a few quick shout-outs. We have Sam Jones, Michael Allen, Sam Gavin out of Australia. We got Daniel Nystrom, Wasim Ishak, Joseph Kraus, RJ Lau, David Knight, Jeff Leonard, David Wilson, Brenda Liston, and Jason Crow. They're all using that coupon code LLA to get 10% off everything you see at MikeMahler.com. I also have – a lot of people don't realize that I have female-cut T-shirts as well, female-cut athletic shirts, and they're pretty long. So for those of you that are looking for a skirt shirt to wear next time you're in Vegas, <laughs> definitely check those out. And for some of you guys who are like part-timing as bouncers, do not buy that shirt. Okay, your, <laughs> your shirts are yeah. small enough, dude. Stop. Yeah, he does not have buy- a size medium over there, okay? So don't buy the shirt. If you buy the shirt, it better be for a woman in your life. Exactly. I don't want to see any guys wearing that. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and also, big thanks to everyone that continues to support us through Patreon on a monthly basis. We truly appreciate that. Head over to patreon.com slash LLA podcast. Start off with a $5 donation, and you can up the ante if you want to with that and keep going. And what that does is help us continue to produce this show and also bring on great guests like we have today. Like this guest is actually probably one of our highly anticipated guests. I don't know how it leaked out that he was coming on our show. Some folks are like, I can't wait till you guys have, you know, Dr. Davis on there. I'm like, how do you know? He's like, are you tapping into our email? Well, I'm, I'm excited for Dr. <laughs> Davis because after, after this show gets out, it'd be Larry King and Charlie Rose are just around the corner. They're going to be <laughs> exactly. calling quick. So this is, this is a big step for him. And this is, I mean, this is one step away from the big leagues. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited for him. <laughs> so anyway, our guest today is Dr. Garth Davis. He is the author of Proteinaholic, How Our Obsession with Meat is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It. And he wrote the book along with Howard Jacobson. And Howard actually has a really cool podcast as well and does a bunch of interviews that you can find on YouTube with various plant-based people, athletes, experts, etc. Dr. Davis, how are you doing today? Welcome. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you so much for coming on. This been looking Thanks forward to talking to you for a while. Need to maybe get on to Larry King. I didn't even know he was still working. But <laughs> <laughs> Larry and I are good friends. So I'll definitely give you put in a good word for you. <laughs> good deal, good deal. <laughs> now, my first question for you is: You're also an expert in surgical weight loss. Sure. So, how do you determine when the plant based diet is not enough? Because you've had such great success with people putting them on a plant based diet. So, when is that not enough? And surgical weight loss a viable option? Yeah, you know, I, I approach, so I kind of consider myself an expert in obesity medicine. Uh, and so I approach obesity as a disease itself. And the surgeries and the medicines and, and things like that 
are a tool in order to achieve a change in diet and a change in exercise habits. You know, it, it really varies on the patient's choices, what kind of um, weight the patient has to lose, what their family history is. You know, if I have someone who comes in and they've been obese since they were born and they've tried every diet under the sun and they weigh 400 pounds, they're going to need some help. It, it just isn't going to go away. I know the, the common layperson idea is like, oh, this guy's fat and lazy. He just needs to diet and exercise. It just isn't true. Right. Metabolisms right. are just so entirely slow. And even on a plant-based diet, they will falter and they, they need help. But the opposite of that is I'll see someone come in with a BMI of 35, meaning they're just slightly over the morbid obese rate. They haven't done a lot of diets. They've put on the weight in the last five years. They're you know eating out at McDonald's every meal. You know, it's crazy to go and do a surgery on that patient. I, I, I could easily change their diet and exercise behavior, maybe throw in a few little medications if they're really hungry in the beginning, right, right. alter their medications that they're on because, you know, everyone's, everyone's polypharmacy. Everyone comes into me with 10 different medications, five of which cause weight gain. And, and so those, and those people, they just don't need surgery. So they're, they're really, it's not that hard to decide who I want to treat with medicine and who I want to treat with surgery. Now, do you do you find? Hold on a second. We got a reverberation effect here. Yeah, say so check your connection over there. Man. Okay. The Skype effect. Yeah. All right. I think that's better now. Here we go. Okay. Now I lost my train of thought there. Well, you know, I have a question. Well, okay, I know that um, there are, there are cases where people come in for bariatric surgery, where you know they're like you said, the weight is just so so huge that they can't really do anything just with diet and exercise. It's just not going to work. But also, what about folks who are also like um, diabetic, you know, and like the diabetic, their, their, their A1C is just so high. Like, and you have some people who like their morning, you know, readings are like, they're pretty much walk around. They're about to die at any minute. Don't even really realize that their bodies are just kind of conditioned to that. Um, yeah. Is that a viable option for them as well? As far as the, 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 the surgery, as well as the, the diet? Yeah, both. I, you know, the surgery, um, especially gastric bypass surgery, has mm-hmm. I mean, remarkable effects with diabetes. It's, it's basically a cure in about 85% of the type 2 diabetics that we see. Mm-hmm. And, and the cure goes beyond just weight loss. It has to do really with really complex changes in anatomy and physiology that happen with the gastric bypass. But, you know, the interesting thing about diabetes is it's so misunderstood, not just by the lay press, but also by doctors themselves, and I constantly have to lecture doctors on what really is diabetes, because everybody thinks diabetes is a carb problem. And it's not a carb problem, it's a carb utilization problem. And what happens is we eat so much meat and dairy, and there's several things in the meat and dairy. There's certain amino acids, and that combined with saturated fat causes fat to be taken into the muscle cells. And when fat gets in the muscle cells, it interferes with the muscle cells' ability to produce insulin receptors. And if you don't have insulin receptors, you can't get sugar into your cells, and then sugar builds up in your blood. So it's not because you're eating too many carbs. It's actually because you're eating too much fat. And there's been many, many studies. I, I go through that in the book showing the connection between meat and, and right, right. diabetes. And, and so it, just putting someone on a plant-based diet, there was a great study where they, they took a group of people and put them on plant-based diet, on a vegan diet versus the typical ADA diet. The vegan diet did much better in treating diabetes. Yeah, Dr. Nick Delgado has similar findings as you. He he was on our show a while back. So do you find so with it's not so much that carbohydrates are the problem, it's just that people are consuming a lot of fat on top of that. And uh, in particular animal fat or would veget- vegan no. sources of fat or plant-based fats have the same issues as well? 
No, there's been no correlation with plant-based fat at all. It has to do more with the, the saturated fat found in animals. Uh, and that combination with certain amino acids that are higher in animals. You know, the funny thing is like people say, oh, a plant, a, a, a plant protein is an incomplete protein. <laughs> they're, they're, they're misunderstanding the idea that like nature has packaged the proteins perfectly for us and the perfect amount of amino acids and certain amino acids that people are trying to get in excess are actually damaging. So leucine, for instance, which, you know, always hear about bodybuilders taking and things like that and, and um, methionine and things like that, that. What we found is that these excess in these certain amino acids could create a lot of the disease processes that we see. Right. So, it, so a certain amount is good for muscle growth, right? But if maybe right. beyond a certain threshold starts becoming problematic. Right. I, you know, I've always had, you know, without a doubt, obviously, if you read my book, we don't need nearly as much protein as everybody thinks we need. I, I would say certainly that's true for the average person. For the actual bodybuilder, you may need a little bit more protein, but does it have to be animal protein? Absolutely not. I mean, if you look around now, there's a whole bunch of vegan bodybuilders building uh, quite a bit of muscle on a plant-based diet. Uh, most of them, or a lot of them, I shouldn't say most, but most, uh, a lot of them are not doing any kind of protein supplementation, too. Right. This whole obsession with protein is actually a very, fairly current thing, even in the athletic community, because even during, let's say, Arnold Schwarzenegger's age of bodybuilding, the golden age, what's considered the golden age, Franco Colombo recommended one gram per kilo plus about 30, 40 grams when they're in a hard training phase. And that's very low considering what people recommend now, which is often two to three, three grams, grams per pound. Right. Yeah. And there's been, and there's been no, I mean, the data, there is data to show that 1.2 is better than 0.6, but, but there's nothing to show the 2.4, 2.2 that they recommend has any benefit whatsoever. And really the benefit on the 1.2 comes more in a cutting phase where you're actually going on a very low calorie diet. Right, uh, right. And it, trying to cut, and in that situation, the higher protein, higher percentage protein may help hold on to muscle. But in the general, for the, I, I mean, I, we're talking about bodybuilding competitors for the vast majority of people and athletes too. Uh, I, I just don't think you need nearly that amount of protein. Well, that, that's the other argument: is the average person, what are they doing that they should even be worried about it? The average person's idea of a workout is picking up the remote control. To change right. the channel, walk into the mailbox, you know. If they are going to like a CrossFit class three times a week or something. I mean, it, it, they're doing a little bit of intense workout, but it's not enough to require these really high doses. And you could get plenty of, I mean, protein is important. It's so important. It's in everything we eat. Even fruits have amino acids, and you will get enough protein just eating a very plant-based diet. And also, another thing people don't understand is a constantly recirculating protein. So we break down our cells, recirculate it. So if you need a certain amino acid, your body's probably got it going through your blood system right now just through recirculation process. Yeah, yeah I always really say that. You know, I reading that West, part in your book, too. Yeah, I always say here in the West, one thing we don't have is a protein problem. We don't have a protein deficiency problem here in the West. And as much as but everybody's so afraid they're not getting enough protein. I'm like, first of all, you know, why are you worried about it so much? <laughs> so the real question is, Dr. Davis, is like in the in the medical community, because most time we hear this is from people who are outside science and outside medicine talking about, oh, you need to get this amount of protein. And there's nothing to back that up. Where did all this even come from about getting a certain amount of protein per kilogram of body weight and all that? Like where did that even come from? That, that just that well, whole theory. Yeah. So I mean, the whole. So in in the late 1800s, they did some studies. They were looking. You know, they 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 identified what a protein was. They found that protein was in all our tissues, and so they said, "Oh my gosh, protein." You know, the the Latin term proteus meaning very important. Protein is extremely important because it's in all our cells, and so if it's so important, we need to eat it. 
and they did like the early studies were done um, on they, they. I mean, this is very unscientific, but they looked at um, construction workers in the turn of the century uh, in like 1901. I think the study was done, and they looked at what they ate and saw that they ate 120 grams of protein a day, and say, well, if they eat 120 grams of protein, everybody needs 120 grams of protein. Now, at that time, there were physicians saying that's ridiculous. They did studies with athletes actually in 1920s uh, at Yale and found that they only need 60 grams a day, but that. You know, back then, no one was dying of of food excess and protein excess, right? People were having a hard time even getting their food. That was uh, more of a problem. In the 1950s, they started looking at how much protein we need mainly to combat nutritional deficiencies. And they did some really in-depth studies. It was when the RDA started coming out, the recommended dietary allowances. And they meet every few years to rediscuss those. And what they basically do is a panel of experts look at tons and tons of research. And they look at at protein utilization, how much someone utilizes, how much comes out in their urine and, and what the balance is. And they came out with the RDA. So the RDA says basically for your average man, you need 56 grams a day. For the average female, you need 44 grams a day. And that's what the average is. But there's a lot of in, uh, of interest in having us eat more, right? There's all the protein supplement companies, the meat company, the dairy company. I mean, you, you, anything you look at now has this advertisement of protein because there's this halo effect around protein. And so uh, this health halo that everybody thinks because there's protein in it. I mean, I saw some vodka. <laughs> oh, <now>. yeah. <laughs> I saw the same thing. Oh, I forgot the name of the, the brand. Halo. It was hilarious. A vodka with protein powder in it? Or yeah, devotion vodka. Acids. That was the name oh, of it, yeah. devotion vodka. Right. And everybody knows their muscles are built of protein, so they think if some is good, more is better. But the analogy we use in the book is that, uh, you know, it's kind of like you're building a house. You need a certain amount of bricks. Right. right. But putting extra bricks is just going to dirty your front yard with a whole bunch of extra bricks sitting there once you've built the house. And so um, and, and so this idea, you know, it's such an American idea. More is better. And in this situation, it just really isn't. So a lot of people are protein hoarders, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly another right. thing here in, in the West, it's not so much that it's even just more is better, it's more because we can afford to buy more. So yeah. we want to justify why we can buy more of it and get more of it. Whereas in other countries, you know, they're, they're, they're not afforded that opportunity to get that much protein and eat meat on such a regular basis. Yet and still, some of them are probably more athletic and healthier than we are. Yeah. And you know, you know what's funny is, um, you know how meat eaters – they're always like, oh, your vegan protein is uh, insufficient for you. It's it's not going to do enough. But they're constantly doing protein shakes on top of their meat. It's like, <laughs> right, you know, right. look, oh, our diet's insufficient. But if yours is sufficient, then why do you have to supplement with protein powders? And we don't supplement with protein powders. And my protein levels are completely fine. And my muscle level's great. And I'm 46 and gaining strength every day. And so, it, you know, it just uh, it, it it really doesn't make sense both on a, you know, if you actually study the literature, but on a, on a, on a common sense knowledge, it's just ridiculous. And it trickles over into the plant-based world as well. You, you still have some of those folks who like turn to plant-based and they still feel like, okay, I got to get my protein. So, well, you know, what's a good vegan protein powder? And I'm like, dude, have you, well, fo- well, have you try, focused on the real thing of focusing they're on trying food to replicate. Yet? They're trying to replicate a meat-based diet. So what they're doing is they used to eat meat a certain way, a bodybuilding standard regimen, and now they're trying to replicate that on a macronutrient level on a vegan diet. So that so they start leaning heavy on the protein shakes and the fake meat meat analogs along oh, those lines. There's people doing vegan paleo and there's people doing <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I saw 
the idea of low carb vegan it just totally defeats the purpose of right. the vegan diet. And, and you really can't do a low carb vegan if you're focused on whole food, exactly. Because you're eating lots of legumes if you want to get a good amount of protein in, and that has a good Arts amount of carbohydrates, which is fine. <laughs> Well, where did where did carbohydrates get such a bad rap? Yeah, because especially in the athletic community, people have this real paranoia of man, I got to watch my carbs. Yeah, otherwise carbs I'm going to get fat. It, it's so insanely ridiculous, and you know, a lot of it comes from this. You know, like so, I, I was just at a conference, and Robert Lustig was speaking. I don't know if you know Robert Lustig. Yeah, sure. He's pretty famous for for uh, maligning sugar, right? And uh, he actually put up a picture during his lecture of my book. <laughs> about how, and he obviously hasn't read my book because I was very negative about him specifically in the book. Right. <laughs> well, well, look, there's no question we get too much sugar, but it's not the sugar itself. It's not the sugar molecule that is making us sick. It's the processed food, the way we take it in and what comes with that processed food. Our bodies thrive on carbs. They're absolutely designed to eat carbs. Um, and if someone is eating a a whole food plant-based diet with lots of natural carbohydrates, you actually naturally become uh, sensitive to the insulin and to the carbs, and so you don't get problems with it. In fact, what people don't understand is it's almost impossible to turn a natural carb into fat. It's called de novo lipogenesis, and your body won't do it because what it first wants to do with the carb is to store it as glycogen because glycogen is our, our ultimate energy um, store. Uh, and then if you were to absolutely saturate your glycogen stores, which is difficult to do, uh, your body would then increase its metabolism to burn the extra carbs. And then if you really ate a ton more, it would turn it to fat. But it's very hard to turn a carb to fat. Right. Fat, on the other hand, your body just takes it and stores it immediately as fat. Yeah, you say in your book that if you cut off – basically, I'm going to put this in layman's terms. You used more science-based science science language than what I'm about to say. But if you cut off a piece of someone's butt cheek and you yes. analyze it in the lab, you yeah. can tell what fatty foods they had recently. Right. That's exactly <laughs> what their, the makeup of the fruit is because that fact gets distributed almost immediately. Yeah, we'll find we'll find a few volunteers for you to <laughs> yeah. do that test in Houston. It's a small thing. It's not so <laughs> Now, I'm going to backtrack here a little bit. How did you get turned on to a plant-based diet? Because you used to recommend more of a animal protein, low-carb diet yourself. Yeah, you know, well, there was like a wake-up period, right? You know, doctors, you don't learn anything about nutrition in medical school. Mm -hmm. And you come out, you start treating patients, you think you become a little bit of a know-it-all. Like, I think I know everything, even though I was never really trained on nutrition. And while I read tons and tons of research about the surgery and all that kind of stuff, I wasn't reading research about nutrition, even though I was treating patients. And there's almost this idea, somehow, I believe in my mind, and I see it in other doctors back then, that nutrition doesn't matter. And more because people just felt that they were genetically prone to certain diseases? I tested, and she, the, the, my insurance guy called me up and was like, uh, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, you didn't qualify for the highest tier because your cholesterol levels are high and you're hypertensive and your liver function tests were elevated. And I'd just gone to get my eyes examined. They said the same thing. There's lipid deposits in my eyes. I was like, wait a second. I must be doing every, something wrong. And it was like this light all of a sudden went off in my head. And I started looking at all my patients. They're all eating exactly the same food I'm eating. And they're all sick as hell. And we all have the same diseases going on. And I, my thought to myself was, well, well how what, – what's happening in the rest of the world? Are there parts of the world where this isn't happening? And started studying that. And lo and behold, there's parts of the world where they don't have these Western diseases. And Western disease – 
becomes very, very tied to diet. And when you look at the difference between someone with Western disease and someone without Western disease, it becomes very clear that the amount of plants eaten determines whether or not you're going to get these diseases. And that really set me off on this huge amount of research into diet and how it affects health. Yeah, and in your book, you were talking about how you, you were doing a photo shoot for some magazine, I believe, or it was a local newspaper, and they wanted you to do some fitness stuff. They wanted you to run up some stairs, and you were really worried about that because your energy was so low at the time. Yeah, I, I just couldn't. You know, I tried to work out a lot back then. Um, I'd go to the gym. I, I looked terrible, even though I went to the gym. And I was doing protein shakes, and I was eating tons of steak, and I was doing everything I could. And I wasn't much of a junk food junkie. I, I just ate you know eggs and bacon for breakfast. Uh, hamburger for lunch, uh, you know, chicken for dinner because I'm trying because I was a weight loss doctor. They put me on the cover of their health and fitness magazine, uh, which was a little bit ridiculous. And uh, yeah, I got really sick doing the stairs there, had to vomit. Um, and uh, that was another part of the wake up call. Like I got to do something about my health. But the, the strange thing is now I, you know, I do Ironmans and marathons and CrossFit and anything I could get my hands on. I look completely different than I did back then. Well, that's yeah. the other thing I was going to say about carbs is that when you eat more carbs, you're naturally going to have more energy, so you're going to be more active, and that's also going to further enhance your metabolism. And you, you right. found that out yourself. You had so much energy, you started doing marathons. That's exactly right. It's like my energy level on a day to day basis is so huge. Like I, I you know, considering I, I got two kids, I have a very busy practice, and I still go every day to work. I, you would just be like, I can't even move my arm. Uh, you know, it's just like just this absolute fatigue. And I see it in all my patients. It's like kind of chronic fatigue syndrome uh, that people have. And, and I had that and it just totally disappeared as I started, you know, replenishing my glycogen and, and getting healthy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, most people are just tired all the time, period. That's common, right? And a lot of yeah. people that do low carbohydrate tend to really douse the coffee, get the caffeine in to get through the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll uh, talking to any kind of low carbers. there. I, I will give credit to this idea of fat adaptation, but it takes a long time to get there, uh, and it's not easy to do. And once you get there, it's you don't perform any better. All the studies are not any greater performance, and there's no good long-term studies on on end organ disease. And so, uh, so the whole thing about getting into ketosis—that's yeah. not something you buy into. The breakdown of ketones is a long energy source. It, it, it is an energy source, and you can live in ketosis. I think it's a, our body's emergency energy source, and our yeah. ancestors lived that way in times of famine. Um, but is it the ideal way? Is it the best way for your body to live? And I think absolutely not. I think it's much more efficient to be, if you've got it available, to be eating good sources of carbohydrates to fill your body. Right. right. I noticed that you were saying that when um, your regular meal regimen was like bacon and eggs in the morning, hamburger for lunch, and chicken when you got home. But I, you know, I actually saw in an interview that you actually saying that chicken was like one of the main contributors to this obesity issue that we have over here in the West, which kind of throws a big monkey wrench into the the, the regimen of a lot of bodybuilders and everyone else because it's all about, you know, got to have the chicken breast and broccoli, man. I mean, what are you saying? Yeah, that chicken makes us fat. What are you talking about, Dr. Davis? Well, they did, they, there was this huge study done in Europe called the Epic Panacea Study, mm -hmm. and they followed 500,000 people for 12 years. A really huge study with some of the top statisticians in the world. And um, they wanted to look at how does meat, you know, there's this kind of thought out there that meat makes you gain weight. And is that true? And so they went to prove that point. Is that true or not? And in fact, meat definitely does make you gain weight. Uh, and their studies show that people, the more meat you ate, the more weight you gained. Uh, and they found that the meat that was most associated with weight gain, in fact, the food most associated with weight gain over time was, in fact, chicken. 
they also found that chicken was very strongly tied to uh, to um, lymphoma. And the other thing that's interesting is that um, if you look at parts of the world where where their meat intake is increasing, a lot of it is chicken, like in China and Japan. Mm-hmm. And that rise in chicken is being very closely correlated with a rise in diabetes. Now, there hasn't been good correlation between chicken itself and diabetes, uh, but I I think that there might, this just really hasn't been studied. I really think there might be a a connection there. Is there there any any meat, one source of meat that's healthier than others, such as fish versus beef? Definitely fish. Okay. Uh, It's hard, it's hard for me to say that that, that fish is bad for you. There's the, the studies are still pretty good. Like when you look at, there's a lot of studies that look at vegan diet versus vegetarian diet versus pesco vegetarian versus eating a little bit of meat. And the pesco vegetarian always performs pretty well. The vegan tends to beat them. There's certain disease processes, like for instance, colon cancer. For whatever reason, pesco vegetarians tend to do better than vegans. Um, but in other diseases, vegans do better. And the vegans tend to edge out the pesco vegetarians. The problem is, that our fish source has changed mm-hmm. considerably. Right, and right. the vast majority of fish that people are consuming is farm-raised fish. And that farm-raised fish yeah. isn't out there swimming eating algae. It's eating grain. And because of that, it doesn't have the omega-3s that the, the, this good fish is giving us. And so I, I think fish is falling down in its ability to be good for us. And also it's so heavy metal contaminated. I think in the future, fish is going to be really bad for you. Yeah, if there's any around, <laughs> we're so overfished our waters. The dead yeah. zones in, in the oceans are scary. Yeah. Now, what about getting omega threes? That's a good topic too, because a lot of people say you can't get all the EPA, DHA on a plant based diet. So, what's your counter to that? You know, it's 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 a it's a really interesting topic, and, and we don't have a great answer to it. Now, okay. now let's let, let's say this. I the, the number one thing that that omega-3 is looked at for. The the thing that people say, "Oh man, omega-3 is great for is heart disease." And let me tell you that vegans have the le- least heart disease in the world. So this idea that vegans are omega-3 deficient, which could be true, but if that's true, where's our heart disease? I mean, where are vegans dying of heart attacks? Because it just isn't happening. Yeah, and, now, and to, to add to your point, they'll also it's anti-inflammatory, right? Exactly. But if you have if you have low inflammation from following a plant-based diet, then yeah. does it matter as much? Yeah. So at, at this conference I was just at, they they released all this data, and this is a very non-vegan conference. It's a uh, it's a very ketosis dominant conference, but they did this huge study on inflammation inflammation and what kind of diets are anti-inflammatory and by far the vegan diet by far was the most anti-inflammatory diet out there now i I, there's been some recent studies that show that vegans start to adapt to where they can turn ala which is one type of fatty acid into omega-3s and dha much more efficiently than a meat eater can and i think there's definitely science to support that I, I, I've been flirting a bit with try. I, you know, I've always stayed away from supplements, and I don't do much. I just take a multivitamin to get me my B12 and some vitamin D if I'm not going outside. Uh, and by the way, my vegans have much better uh, vitamin levels than my meat eaters do, much better. Um, but you know, I just do a multivitamin just because it's easy, and then I remember to get my B12 and stuff like that. But I have added a microalgae recently. Uh, just to see how I feel on it and see the difference. I did test my omega-3s before and they were fine. Uh, but, 
you know, I, some people are taking microalgae. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm on the fence about it. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with some of the findings in the Mediterranean diet. And I think most of that has to do with eating more plants. So people yeah. mm-hmm. look at the Mediterranean diet. They're like, oh, it's the fish. Oh, it's the olive oil. No, really, it's the plants and the carbs. But, uh, but there is something towards the omega-3 and the anti-inflammatory effect. And, and, and there may be something towards taking a microalgae supplement. But it certainly isn't absolutely necessary. Well, Dr. Udo Erasmus basically states that you'll convert 3 to 5% of ALA into EPA, DHA. So if you take, let's say, a couple tablespoons of flaxseed powder, you're going to get around 8 grams of ALA. So 3 to 5% doesn't sound like much, but 3 to 5% of 8 grams is fairly significant, especially if you have a few tablespoons throughout the day. And chia seeds would be another source. Mm-hmm. Hemp seeds, to some hemp seeds, is more omega-6 than 3, but it's still a sort of substantial amount of omega-3 as well. Yeah, the other thing you got to rem- remember is that... Um Inflammation with the omegas doesn't have to do with your total amount of omega-3, but rather your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. So if you're getting – if you could drop down your omega-6 intake, which is usually in fried foods with oils – uh, then your omega three, omega six to omega three uh, ratio is going to drop, and that's going to be anti-inflammatory. So it's not necessarily that you have to have more omega three. If you just drop omega six, don't eat fried foods and junk foods, uh, you're going to get less inflammation. Right. And you mentioned B twelve. That's another thing that's always brought up to vegans. It's like, oh, you guys are deficient in B twelve. And it's always come from meat eaters, but there's always just one little thing that they don't understand about the meat that they're eating that pretty much it's deficient in B12 too. <laughs> yeah, no, B12 comes from bacteria. So uh, we do see meat eaters with B12 deficiency too. Uh, but if you're eating meat and it's got bacteria in it, there tends to be some B12 and you'll get your B12. There have been studies showing that vegans get B12 deficiency. But now, once again, there's a lab deficiency, but there's not a disease deficiency. So you would expect a B12 deficient person to be anemic, and we don't see huge anemia rates with vegans. It's on par with the general public. You'd expect someone with B12 to have neurological deficits. We don't see that in vegans. And you'd expect someone with B12 deficiencies uh, to possibly have energy level problems. And like we talked about, it's quite the opposite. And, and recently I had a, a, a vegan, a raw food vegan who basically eats all fruit, who doesn't supplement anything. One of these people that's really into natural eating. Natural. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, Christine. Yeah. And so her B12 was slightly low. And I, I you know, I told her you got to supplement, but I mean, I'm, I'm treating a number here because if you know Christina, the girl's bouncing off the walls. Oh, yeah. Perfect health. She's not anemic. She's not sick in any way, shape, or form. She's the epitome of health. So basically, I'm treating a number. Uh, and she generally doesn't listen to me. And so, uh, um, because, the, you know, she just feels good. And so, I, you know, uh, my general opinion is you should take a B12 supplement. It's easy, it's cheap, there's no. There's no harm in doing it that we've ever seen, uh, but I, I don't know that the slight – and quite honestly, if you if you really ate – like if you – and I, I tried to do this for a while to prove this. It was just kind of gross. But if you eat a truly organic – if you're pulling vegetables from the ground and eating it by just lightly dusting it off, so you're getting that soil, and that soil is organic, not this nitrous crap that's out there, but right. a real organic composted soil, you're going to get B12. Uh, the problem is that's not how we eat it. Everything's – you know, washed and cleaned and grown in soil that just doesn't have this bacteria anymore. And so you just need that supplement. 
Right. I mean, yeah, I'll take I'll take the supplement. Exactly. Over, I mean, the, over the over the bacteria in the soil. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, even the meat you're eating is being supplemented as well. So those cows are getting the supplement. So you know, I'm just gonna go ahead and get my own. <laughs> yeah, because my wife and I started like I was like I don't want to take any supplements. So I want to just eat the food from the ground. But then we're like the ground pulling off bugs. And, <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I was like, this is just not. <laughs> so uh, and I, you know, <laughs> you start getting vegan, you're like that. Well, is a grub vegan? I don't know. So. No. Uh, <laughs> Now you're a big fan of legumes, as am I. But what do you what do you do? You have any concerns about the lectins or the so-called anti-nutrient properties? Yeah, absolutely zero. I mean, like, uh, like it's just it's so ridiculous. It's such a made-up concept here. Right, First right. of all, one of the things lectins do, one of the anti-nutrient things they do, is bind iron. And it may be it's really looking like a lot of the excess iron that's out there might be disease-causing. So that may be a protective benefit of the lectins. Um, the other thing is that lectins are easily soaked out and, and uh, cooked out of the, the food. Right, right. But once again, are people that eat lots of lectin-containing foods sick? And the answer is quite the opposite. So when they looked at the blue zones, um, which are the parts of the world where people have the most 100-year-olds, the most centenarians, they looked at their diet and their habits. And there was a lot of things that go into being a centenarian, but they wanted to try to develop corollaries, like what makes Okinawans like Sardinians, like Seventh-day Adventists. And what they found that one thing that was in common in all of these um, cultures was a very strong reliance on legumes. And there's definitely, and I put down several references in the book, there's definitely a strong correlation between more legumes and health. So this idea of it being anti-nutrient is just crap. I mean, really, really dumb. Yeah, no doubt. Now, how do you prepare your legumes? Because you don't use oils to cook. So do you use a steam cooker? What do you do? I love steam cookers, love pressure cookers. I also don't mind cans so long as you get a can that's BPA-free. Right, right. right. So organic uh, eaten. Is that what it's called? Organic eaten. Yeah, I use those quite a bit because that whole soaking process and the overnight, yeah, that's just never worked for me. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm doing something what? wrong, but it, it never comes out the way it comes out in the cans. <laughs> right, and, and the cans are just so easy. And so right, like right. You know, last night I had a bowl of black meat with some brown rice, some cut-up avocado, some pico de gallo, and it was easy, and some spinach. And it was so quick, and it was easy, and it was delicious. It took minutes to make. I mean, it's... You know, so if I tell people that they got to go and, you know, uh, you know, soak and then after they soak, wash again and, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, that's, that's just one more barrier to entry where it's so easy for them just to go to Taco Bell and get a bean burrito. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> now you don't have a big fan of oils. What's the problem with oils? You know, it's not that I'm not a big fan of oils. I, I, I think that certain oils are okay. You got – fats are a little bit funny. So like um, omega-3s and stuff, you got to watch out for oxidation because uh, if you get an oxidized oil, that's worse for you than anything you can imagine. And trans fats are bad, and they're obviously sometimes mixed in with everything. Um, like a very, very pure olive oil, like an extra virgin olive oil that's been cold-pressed, because if you're heat-pressed, you start to, to change the uh, – the chemical structure, uh, that's that's probably okay. Here's the thing is I'm mainly dealing with people that have weight issues. Right. Right. And oils are very calorie dense. And, and easy, so, easy to overdo, right? You could put a couple <laughs> tablespoons on your salad and now you have 64 grams of fat. Yeah, like the, like people when they cook, they'll take Pam cooking spray. You know, Pam advertises low-fat or non-fat, low-calorie. Now, you know how ridiculous it is to call Pam low-fat? It's 100% fat. So the reason they call it low-fat is because the serving size is a quarter of a second of a spray, <laughs> which is ridiculous. because <laughs> second. And so most people are doing like a 10-second spray on their on – their, <laughs> On their pan, but they're thinking that it's a, uh, you know, that it's still low fat, and it's not. It's right. 
It's like taking one milligram of coconut oil. And yeah. Low fat. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and it's not at all. Uh, and at least in coconut fat, you're getting some medium chain triglycerides, which your body can't feel. Not that I want people to eat coconut oil. But um, well, is the saturated fat in coconut oil the same problem as any other saturated fat? No, it is. I mean, it, it, the saturated fat cook oil is ceric acid and, and lauric acid, and they, they don't seem to rise the, to spike the cholesterol like uh, the palmitic acid that you find in animal fats are. But um, but still, I mean, oils they're they're very calorie dense, and I, I tend to say if you don't need them, why use them? Uh, and um, and so most of the recipes and stuff we give, like in the book, there's just a little bit of oils, but mainly we're using water. Have you had people come in that really wanted to get the weight loss surgery? And you just steered them towards dietary changes, and they had such great results, they didn't have to bother going yeah. down the – okay, great. I got one lady who's like – she comes in. She comes to see me a lot. She's so funny uh, because she was like one of these like borderline – look, I was like, look, we could do surgery, but why don't we just try this diet stuff? And you know, she started. She's like, I'm not going to lose weight eating apples. <laughs> uh, and each time she's coming in, she loses weight. Then she gets pissed off because she goes below – the weight lot, the weight limit that we have for surgery. Yeah. <laughs> she was still on that borderline of hope. So she right. so just in case. And now I've got her down to a completely normal weight and yeah. she's still mad at me that she can't have surgery. I'm like, you weigh a normal weight now. She's like, yeah, but I wanted the surgery. I was like, but you're doing perfect. She's like, yeah, but I wanted the surgery. It's amazing how, how comfortable Americans are with surgery. Oh, I mean, let me tell you, people, people blame doctors for this, um, you know, Western medicine has become sick care rather than health care, and doctors are doling out meds and, and and surgeries, and that's because that's what we're trained to do. But the other thing is that's what people want. Like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's hard to tell someone – someone comes in to see me. It's hard to tell them, well, let's try talking about diet. And, and first of all, they all my patients have tried a million different diets, so they got zero faith in diet. Uh, but secondly, we're just in this treatment culture, this belief that you can't heal the body uh, except through medicine. And just not true. You can well, also, it. given the choice, if you tell someone, look, you can change your diet and we'll get your cholesterol healthy, or you can just take a pill, most people are going to say, just give me the pill so I can just keep doing what I'm doing. It's faster. Yeah. <laughs> well, they don't want to change their lifestyle, so they'd rather just take 30 pills and just keep doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah even on that happening. note right there, Dr. Davis, even after they've had surgeries, you know, I've seen lots of shows. Actually, I think that you've been on one of the shows where they've gotten the surgery and then you think they can go back to doing what they were doing before. But you have less right. of a stomach now, so you definitely can't do what you and eat the way you did before. But they go back to that. So, yeah, no, we've seen people gain lots of weight back after surgery. And it's because, you know, I always tell them, you do what you always done, you get what you always got. So a lot right. of people will go from eating a double cheeseburger to a single cheeseburger <laughs> and then get pissed off that they're not seeing the right results. And I'm like, that's not what the surgery is about. It's right. about the surgery being a tool to change the way you eat, and if you're not changing the way you eat, you're, you're not going to see the benefits you want to see. Yeah, I think one of the things that you do that's different from a lot of um, a lot of doctors is the fact that you actually have like an owner's manual, and you talk about an owner's manual for your bari- you know, your bariatric ser- um, patients, you know, just kind of help them and guide them along. Because I think what ends up happening with a lot of doctors is like, okay, you've got the surgery, you know, a couple of follow ups, and then they're kind of done and moving on to the next person. Yeah, we tell our patients we want to see them for life. I want to see them five years out more than I want to see them one year out right. because that's you know, when they start forgetting all the rules and they start going back to old habits. And so it, it really is supposed to be a lifelong relationship uh, that we have. 
Now, going back to what you said about one of your patients, you recommended because I'm not going to lose weight on apples. And that, that brings up what we hear a lot about in our industry where people are very concerned about excessive fruit. Yeah, intake. the They think they're going to become obese. <laughs> they go, well, I don't want to eat too much fruit because it's, it's all sugar. I'm going to get fat. Is it? It's, it's just, so go ahead. Go ahead. Because there's just zero science to support that. In fact, quite the opposite. There's a lot of science to show that fruit helps lose weight. And even in this conference I was just in, there was all these studies – on you know fruit and vegetables helping with diabetes and, and heart disease and cancer, and yet they tend to tell people to rest- when you actors what they tell diets like restrict fruit because of the carbs in it. And it's like I said, you, your body cannot take an apple and turn it into fat; it just can't do it. Uh, and it's a really stupid concept. Like a perfect example, and I give this example in the book of, of how crazy this all is. I had a patient come to see me, really smart woman. Um, she's originally from Ghana. And she comes to see me. She's an engineer, and she's been gaining weight. And she's like, I've tried everything. I've done Atkins and South Beach and Paleo. Okay, well, tell me what you eat. She goes, well, for breakfast, I have protein. I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, what's protein? I mean, you know, uh, people say, you know, chicken. Well, there's more fat in chicken than there is protein. So, you know, what's protein? So I have eggs and, and, and ham. And then for lunch, I have chicken. And I eat protein all day long, and I can't lose weight. And I'm like, why do you think you can't lose weight? She goes, I think it's because of the carbs. But you just get me a diet. (laughs) So once in a while, what happens is I eat a meal from Ghana because I got all these friends from Ghana and they come over. We cook the traditional Ghana meal and it's very high in carbs and it's lots of potatoes and beans and things like that. And I said, well, have you been to Ghana recently? She's like, yeah. And I was like, and what's everybody's weight like? She's like, oh, they're all skinny. (laughs) She's like, and by the way, I was there for two months and I actually lost weight. And I was like, Make the connection, people. Make the connection. The skinniest people in the world eat the most carbs. Look at the Asians. They're eating rice like crazy. In fact, you know, in America, the best diet of all the different diets that have been out there, the one that was studied the most and had the best results for weight loss and hypertension and diabetes was the rice diet at Duke, where they gave people nothing but rice and fruit. That was all they could eat, rice and fruit. Unbelievable results. Look, Dr. Davis, I know I'm pretty sure you're familiar with Chinatown here in Houston. And we go to this restaurant. Um, there's this one restaurant, Fufu restaurant, and there's Tantan. And I'm always amazed when I'm sitting there. I see these very slim Asians there. They're, they're eating these giant rice meals. And they're right. drinking beer and sake with it. And, and I just remember my wife looking like, what the hell, man? Like, like I'm sitting over here just trying to have a soup and, and not overdo it. And they're just over there having a feast on just rice and beer and, and sake. And she's like, I don't understand what's happening right now. I said, well, look yeah. at their plate. How much meat do you see on their yeah, plates? No, you know, I said, it's very little. It's <laughs> very little. I said, it's actually the younger ones who are actually eating the meat. I said, pay attention to the older ones at the table. And those are the ones I want to watch because obviously – they're still here and they're older. So I want to pay attention to them. I'm not trying to pay attention to the young one over here. Cause who's to say they're even going to make it to that age. So she, this one started kind of making sense to her. Cause at first yeah. she's like, I don't understand how they can just eat so much rice and, and all these carbs and not gain a pound. I said, well, there you go. Yeah, it's because they don't have uh, intramyocellular fat because they don't eat the kind of diet we eat. And so they can process those carbs really easily into glycogen and, and energy and it doesn't get stored. Exactly. Well, like what you said about protein, this, this lady was saying, I'm eating protein, but she's really eating a lot of fat. Right. That's pretty much the same way people are saying I high carb. But it's when you add, when you look at everything that's added to it, lots of oils, et cetera, right. a lot of the carbs that people think they're eating in America is, is not low fat. It's really high in fat as well. And I think that's one of the problems is you're having a good amount of carbs and then you have a ton of fat piled onto it. Oh yeah, people think you know people call like a donut a carb, and you know they're kind of <laughs> donut. You know, pizza is a carb. No, it's not. It's mainly fat. And so right, right. There, there's this big. I think you know, the biggest problem is that we've started to reduce 
nutritional science into these like not you know we're not just going down now to protein and carbs and fat we're going down to individual amino acids and uh types of saturated fat and really what we ought to be talking about is the whole food you know forget fats and carbs and let's talk about whole food what's good for you and what's bad for you a donut bad for you a steak bad for you fruit excellent for you and so um i think we need to be talking more about whole foods and real foods well sometimes people cut out fruit because they think okay i can reduce sugar there and that way i have a donut <laughs> I, yeah exactly i have a threshold now for a cinnabon or you know, a chocolate cake or, or so they, they make the, they're, they're they're cutting the out good carbs so they can put in bad carbs yeah, like, well if a banana has 100 calories you know and that's coming from sugar and then i have a coke over here with the same amount i'll have a coke yeah, it just you cannot make that connection. The fiber in the banana slows the sugar absorption, so you don't get the insulin spike. Insulin right. does, right. you know, when you instead, get that, instead of counting calories, you should be counting nutrition, like measuring actual nutrition that you're taking in. So, so do you hear that? You if it fits your macros, folks out there. Okay, I can't. <laughs> it fits at macros. Oh my god, that drives me. Well, in the fitness world, we use the macros quite a bit because it, it helps the lay person just get balanced, right? So we yeah. break it down to protein, fat, carbohydrates. So within the context of a plant-based diet, you have some legumes, some nuts and seeds, et cetera. So now you're just getting a variety of foods. So it does it does help in, in frame certain things for people. But then when people become very pedantic about it, that's where it becomes problematic. But see, that's the problem because when you start breaking down things to protein and fat and carbs, people start to create all carbs. As Absolutely. And it, and right, right. And to, you know, to tell you the truth, there have been so – I mean so many. I think I list something like 15 studies in the book. We looked at macronutrient, um, macronutrient breakdown and whether or not it affected weight, and it doesn't at all. I mean it doesn't matter if you're eating 10 percent carb and 90 percent protein. Well, I don't think they weren't that high, but uh, and or, or if it's like ninety or eighty percent carb and ten percent protein, it was the same weight loss at, at an equal calorie. Yeah. Um, and then there's been some really good lab studies showing that you know if you're eating a predominantly carb-based diet, you tend to uh, burn more as energy. There was a really good study in cell metabolism recently. So I mean, the, the, this macronutrient concept it just doesn't fit well with my idea of what nutritional science should be. Should be we should not be talking about macronutrients. We're just talking about whole foods. Right. Yeah. Can we talk and one more thing? We probably shouldn't be talking about the majority of people unless you actually have like celiac disease. Let's talk about gluten. Right. Yeah. Let's talk about it because it, now everyone has diagnosed themselves as having, you know, a gluten issue. You know, because, like oh well, it's in carbs. You know, and it's, it's yeah. gluten. So Pe- it's people be that have me. never had an issue with gluten all of a sudden it's a big problem. They've been eating bread their whole life. And they're like, well, wait a minute, that's the problem right there. <laughs> it's such a. Um, placebo or nocebo effect right? <laughs> you created this idea that it's bad that actually the guy who came up with this idea of gluten sensitivity um has now rescinded on it like the actual first author and he did a study where they took a group of people that said they had gluten sensitivity or being treated for gluten sensitivity or gluten free and he put them on three diets where they gave them the food and they didn't know what their food had in it. And some of them were getting a high gluten load. Some of them were getting a medium gluten load. Some were getting no gluten. And they all complained that they had gluten sensitivity. So even the people getting no gluten said they had they were getting gluten sensitivity problems because they thought there was gluten in there. Uh, just to show you that this really is kind of in the mind kind of thing. Now, I will say this. One of the problems that's happened over the years is we've completely changed our microbiome. Because a high meat, high fat diet with a low amount of fruits and vegetables and low prebiotics completely changes your microbiome. And when your microbiome changes, you can't tolerate certain foods. So if you're a meat eater and you go towards a plant-based diet, in the beginning you're going to get gassy because you've got the wrong bacteria in your bowels and it takes time for that to change. But when it changes, you get good bacteria and you can tolerate the food a lot better. 
Do you, do you recommend a gradual approach for someone who wants to transition as a result of that, or do you think some people can just 100% go from meat-based to plant-based? Uh, I mean, some can, um, and you can do it. I mean, there's there's ways to do it, like take vino before you eat your meals. Take a probiotic to try to um, put in some good bacteria. Soak your beans overnight with a teaspoon of uh, of baking soda and then wash it really well before before you cook them. Uh, things like this help quite a bit with the gas. Um, I, you know, gas isn't going to kill you, so if you don't mind the gas, Just the uh, <laughs> might kill someone around you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> might clear a room real fast. <laughs> yeah, can't, can't find a seat at the most social thing to do. You know? <laughs> yeah, but funny enough, if you're vegan, it, it shouldn't clear the room too bad. The, the exactly. smells go down quite a bit because a lot of the smell has to do with the sulfur containing uh, um, chemicals that are found more in a meat-based diet. So vegans actually smell better, both body odor and. Uh, and uh, other odors. <laughs> so uh, you could get away with the – there's no silent but deadly. Well, I mean I haven't, I haven't farted since 1996 so anyway. I don't think <laughs> well, I – so I adapted a long time ago. Now, another hot topic is phytoestrogens, right, especially in, in reference to soy. People think that they're going to grow bitch tits if they just have a, a serving of tofu or – natto or soybeans, et cetera, but also not just soy. People are paranoid about the phytoestrogens in legumes in general. So what's your take on all of that? I mean, you know, it's just, again, it's just nonsense, you know. <laughs> if soy was, like, so bad, then I would be in a bra, you know, and it just isn't <laughs> fact. I do tons of soy. In fact, it's quite the opposite, too. I mean, a lot of what people think about soy, and they got to understand that these myths about soy are spread by the industry that is getting dominated by soy, which is the dairy industry. And um, they're very threatened by soy and trying to fight soy. And so, um, look, the, the GMO crap soy may not be as good for you, but – but soy eating countries that are, you know, if you go and look at the Asians and, and how much soy they eat and their disease results, it's, it, it looks far better. There's been a lot of good studies that show that it doesn't cause breast cancer. In fact, maybe protective against breast cancer. And certainly there was one great study that showed it's protective against recurrent cancer, which is funny because, you know, oncologists will tell their patients don't eat any soy. Uh, and yet the study showed that eating soy might actually prevent the recurrence of the breast cancer. And the, the problem is, is that soy is not actually a phytoestrogen. It's, a, it's a, what we call a partial agonist antagonist. It may actually mm-hmm. antagonize the estrogen rather than than. Than to stimulate it, and in children, soy consumption tends to prevent, uh, as opposed to milk consumption, tends to prevent precocious puberty. Uh, mm. And we know that kids that get precocious puberty are at higher risk of getting certain cancers. So, oh. so it, it's nonsense. It's just total nonsense. Well, I mean, Dr. Eugene Shipman, he's the author of, I, I believe, the testosterone syndrome. He used to, with his TRT patients, he would give them. 25 grams of soy protein powder as a way to block conversion of testosterone into estrogen. Yeah, it works really well because of, of that uh, anti-estrogen. Right. And my understanding is that there's two receptors, an alpha and a beta estrogen receptor, and that soy works on the beta, which can actually dock into estrogen receptors and prevent stronger estrogens, such as what's in meat, especially factory farm meat. Is, it's, these are real powerful estrogenic chemicals as well. So I find it funny that people that eat factory farm meat in large amounts are worried about phytoestrogens in plants when, they, when the estrogens they're taking are way more potent. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. Like I always think it's so it's so funny to me when people are worried about the estrogens in soy when there's so much more in the meats and the chickens and the things like that. Tons more estrogen, tons more. 
What about in let's say organic meats, right? Not factory farmed. Is it? Is there? Are there still? Are there still just naturally occurring estrogens yeah. in the yeah, tissue? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's still you know it's it's still a, a female cow, uh, exactly. and you are still getting their estrogens because they create estrogens, and it, it still is absorbed into your body. Yeah, that, that's the part I never see discussed. That statement right there. You're eating a female cow. What do you think's in there? Yeah, so and, and, you're, you know, and you're drinking her milk. You know, so everyone's there's this huge. This new, oh, well, grass-fed meat. First of all, no one's eating grass-fed meat. I got so many paleo guys telling me how <laughs> grass-fed meat is, and then they go and get their cheeseburger at, you know, wherever it is. It, it Bingo. 100% I see that all the time. People right. talk about, oh, I, I only eat meat from this, and then you go out to dinner, and they order right off the menu. Come on. There, that stuff's not organic and free-range. There have one free-range grass meat. But the other thing is that the, the harmful things of meat, the stimulation of IGF-1, the increase in heme iron, the heterocyclic amines, the nitrosic compounds, thermoresistant virus, I could go on and on the things that are bad in meat and that's all in grass-fed meat too there's nothing there's no difference in a grass-fed meat and a corn-fed meat as far as that's concerned now corn-fed meat it's going to have a higher fat it's going to have a higher omega-6 it's going to have no omega-3s grass-fed meat will have omega-3 so yeah grass-fed meat's going to be a little bit better than than uh, a corn-fed meat but it's still going to have the carcinogenic effects uh that we see in in steak so do you think that you're much less at a risk of developing various kinds of cancer by following a plant-based diet. No, I don't think that. I know that for scientific fact. Uh, that's a there was some really good science coming out of the um, um, Adventist Health study where they followed seventy thousand Seventh Day Adventists for many years. And the beauty of doing that is it's a it's a heterogeneous group of people, so they, they don't have the same genes, but they follow a healthy lifestyle. So even they, they what they, they they change they don't smoke they all exercise but some of them eat meat some of them eat fish some of them are vegetarian some are vegan so it's a great population to study and even their meat eaters are very healthy meat eaters so if you look at their meat eaters compared to the standard American meat eater they're much healthier and yet still if you look at them the vegans have much less cancer much less diabetes much less heart disease and live longer yeah now also with plant based nutrition are there any combinations you avoid, such as, I don't know, let's say you have legumes, rice, and then you have fruit for dessert afterwards. Is there anything that you like to avoid spread out apart? No. No, I don't believe it. doesn't matter. Okay. Any business is nonsense. Yeah. It's like I always – some of the stuff online is really funny when you're <laughs> – doctor specializes in the stomach. It's like this idea of food layering in your stomach. And yeah. <laughs> it's such a bunch of nonsense. It makes absolutely zero sense, and uh, it, it just isn't true. Yeah, no doubt. Now, what about nightshade vegetables such as tomatoes, bell peppers? Is there is there anyone who should avoid that? People with rheumatoid arthritis, people with other yeah. inflammatory issues. Again, it's like it's so it's so it's so over talked about. Um, there might be if you were a rheumatoid arthritis patient, I would probably do with you. I would put you on a vegan diet and not limit nightshades and see how you do. Right, if you were right. still having rheumatoid arthritis effects, I would limit some of the nightshades. And, and do like a, uh, a food exclusion trial where for two weeks you go off and then two weeks you go back on and see if there's a difference. Uh, but most of my rheumatoid arthritis patients, I have them go ahead and eat the nightshades because there's more benefit in the nightshades than there is negative. What about right, Hashimoto's disease? Because that's what my wife has. And she was told that she can't have nightshades, which drives her crazy because she's Middle Eastern. So she's like, what are you saying? I can't have like tomatoes. What, what are you saying? What? Who? <laughs> that's a crime. You know, tomatoes. Yeah, <laughs> 
even less. Like the funny thing about Hashimoto's is like it, it's a huge disease in meat eaters, and yet they blame the vegetables that meat eaters aren't even eating uh, that cause it. And and the, the the thing about the nightshades is they do tend to um, bind iodine, um, and in that way it could be what's called a gorgogen. But if you're getting ample iodine, it makes zero difference whatsoever. And so long as you're getting ample iodine, and with the amount of salt that we get in our diet, uh, you should, everybody should be getting ample iodine. Uh, there, there just shouldn't be a problem. If you're not getting enough iodine, that makes a problem. But if you're getting enough iodine, the nightshades make zero difference. What about what about salt? That's another discussion point. Is do you prefer using sea salt or not at all? I don't okay. think that the sea salt. I think that's a little bit of a health halo effect that sea salt somehow uh, better than other salts. I, look, salt may be a problem in hypertension, but the real problem with salt. Is not the salt itself. It's the fact that we don't, we aren't, we're getting a lot of salt, but we're not getting a lot of magnesium and potassium and calcium. And so we're not counterbalancing. There's a, a very delicate balance that your body has to try to sustain. And, and so if you're eating a plant-based diet and you're getting lots of magnesium and lots of uh, potassium and, and these kind of things, you're not as affected by the salt intake. So a lot of hemp seeds, cacao, stuff that's really high in magnesium. Yeah, those are great. Legumes have a fair amount of magnesium as well. Yeah, magnesium is probably the one, the one electrolyte we're so unbelievably deficient in. Yeah, exactly. Instead of worrying about protein, you should be focusing more on magnesium. Yeah, especially with athletes. A lot of athletes yeah. tend to be magnesium and zinc deficient mm-hmm. as well. Magnesium, fiber, zinc. These are. I mean, I see zinc deficiency so often. It's 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 amazing how deficient people are in in, in certain vitamins when I see them, especially the meat eaters. Yeah. What, what's your favorite source? food source for zinc well you know the nuts and the seeds and the beans right you get lots of it um right. and so you get plenty from that now what, what about coffee what's your take on that i mean I, so far i've been very uh, I, i've been very impressed with the recent research on coffee i i certainly don't i don't find it to be as negative as we used to think and uh, I think it's probably fine as I sit here drinking a cup of coffee. <laughs> well, uh, as all of us are probably. Right <laughs> I'm actually yeah. drinking water for the first time doing the show. So. <laughs> Contrary to your belief, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I, thought you, I thought you had IV coffee. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely has antioxidants in it. And, right. The chlorogenic acid has a lot of benefits. Yeah. 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 You know, certainly probably green tea and white tea is better for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, – yeah, I yeah. Why, why not have it all, right? <laughs> you could have coffee and green tea. Yeah. <laughs> now, final question is, what, what's your fitness regimen like? You do marathons, and we know you do a lot of that kind of stuff, but do you lift weights as well? Yeah, I've kind of switched a little bit. Um, huh? I used to do mainly um, endurance. Um, I've become impressed with uh, the data on high-intensity interval training. Uh-huh. Uh, and now I've kind of trying to create a – exercise regimen where I'm, you know, when you're training for a marathon, they're like, there's like a couple weeks where you're really healthy. Like that, that taper, that's the, that's your healthiest, fittest time. But every time before that, you're not that great. So what I wanted to do is create a situation where I'm constantly healthy. Like if you said, let's go and run 14 miles right now, I'd be able to do it. Or let's go, you know, do a sprint. Let's go. So what I basically do now is I do two days a week of a powerlifting routine where I'm doing, you know, uh, multi-joint compound exercises. Yeah. Exercises. Mm -hmm. And then I do CrossFit one to two days a week um, where it's more high intensity. Uh, And then two days a week, I'm 
running kind of sprints, and then one day a week I'll do just a slow, steady jog. Oh, sounds good. Sprinting is what I found is I increased carbohydrates, especially sweet potato, brown rice. I've, I've always eaten a lot of legumes, but after reading your book, I just started lowering fat more and eating more carbohydrates. One, one of the areas where I found a, a nice correlation with an increase in performance was the sprinting and I do. And I do about 13 60-yard dashes twice a week, and I just felt like I had way more reserves for that style of training. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good workout. Thirteen, six thirty yard dash. That's yeah, I'm working up to twenty. So what I'm doing is I'm adding around every month. So for example, in I think in January I did eleven, and then February twelve, March thirteen. Now actually I did ten. So anyway, next month I'm going to go to fourteen. So by the end of the year it'll be twenty, just adding one round per month. Yeah. And there's and there's some interesting data. I mean, they're, the, what they're trying to do now is because they, they they consider sprint training different than high intensity interval, believe it or not, in the in the research world. Um, and so high intensity intervals a little bit longer, hopefully yeah, yeah less, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, but then uh, it's pretty fast. It goes pretty fast. The workouts, I mean, the workout doesn't take long to do. It doesn't take long to do 13 rounds. It's an all out sprint. Walk back to the start. Repeat immediately. And but but I mean, you're wiped. I'm just, I'm wiped out. By the end of these workouts, and, and the, and the physiologic effect that you're doing is building up mitochondria in your cells, uh, and those mitochondria will speed up your metabolism. And so that that's the beauty of these high intensity intervals. Is oh, for physique composition benefits, it's tremendous. Yeah, and then I, I still like to do the aerobic, you know, fat burning aerobic uh, exercise um, too. Just you know, the, I, I think they're complementary. I'm trying to hit everything. I'm trying to hit my flexibility. Yeah, sounds like it. Strength, my endurance my anaerobic endurance. So. you do any pre and post nutrition, a certain kind of meal you like to have two hours before training or immediately after? Yeah, I like to, um, I, I like to go, um, before training doing, um, nuts and fruit. Uh-huh. Um, and then after training beans and rice. Uh, the, the one thing we know is there is probably, well, there, it's starting to get debated, but I, I do think there is a magic window in that first 30 minutes to an hour after exercise where you want to get four carbs to one protein if you want to be specific. I'm done counting. I used to count it. <laughs> I don't count. I just have some beans and rice and, and know that it just seems that these natural combinations tend to uh, do sufficiently well. Yeah, I, th- I think people stress themselves out a little bit too much or, or a lot with trying to get these perfect combinations. Oh, people are calculating and weighing, and I don't do any. I, I see the guys at my CrossFit gym. Yeah. They're just going crazy with measuring with their cups and all that. <laughs> I, you know, I'm the oldest guy in the class, and I'm lifting as much as all of, they, all of them. And, I, you know, I really don't work out for more than an hour a day. Right, right. I mean, that's that's as that's, much- that's the optimal time. Right. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I'll go in, do CrossFit or do my powerlifting or do my, I mean, usually my sprint days are 30 minutes, like you said, and longer runs. I said, this idea that you have to work out excessively to get healthy is just not true. Well, I mean, if you're doing a, a, a well-structured regimen, the work, you really shouldn't be able to go beyond 45 minutes to an hour, even if you want to, because if you hit squats hard and deadlifts hard in particular, yeah. those wipe you out quite a bit. You don't want to keep going. Oh yeah, I did. I did a ton of deadlifts yesterday, and I didn't want to keep going. But, but you know, like when I was doing, uh, you know, and some of this stuff, I I think it's important to set goals for yourself, whether it's a PR with no your doubt. thing, with because yeah. the one thing the body will do, and I found this a lot with my patients, is in the beginning whatever they're doing is hard, but then they keep doing the same thing over and over again, and your body just says, okay, I'm used to it, and right, changes. So I'm constantly measuring myself. I'm constantly saying, okay, this is my PR and deadlift. Can I beat that a month from now? Right, uh, and then same with with the marathons. I, I I don't 
you know, there's a lot of debate now over these really long distance marathons and stuff, whether they're good for you. I, I wouldn't let people get get too worried about those studies. If you're going to become a professional marathoner, maybe you should worry about it. But a marathon here and there or a half marathon or even a 10K, if that's all you can. But but set a goal and try to, to reach those goals. That, that, I think goal setting is vital to becoming healthy and athletic. Yeah, it makes things more exciting as well, right? When you have purpose, when you're going into each workout with an actual purpose where you're, you have a, a clear direction on where you're heading, it's more right. exciting. And then as you're making right. progress towards that, that's that's invigorating. That's self-motivating. Yeah, crossing a finish line to me is about the most, you know, I cross a finish line and it, it's like the icing on the cake. And, and, you know, the thing is, if you didn't train hard, it's not worth it. But if you trained hard, that it's, it's the celebration of crossing that finish line. That's so huge. Or in our CrossFit gym, every time you hit a PR, you go and ring a bell. I love ringing that friggin' bell. You know, <laughs> I live for that friggin' bell. Yeah, and there's a nice competitive element there as well yeah. in the CrossFit gym. Yeah, so long as you take it easy and don't try to compete with 22-year-olds too much. Here. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything you do in addition to for re- restoration, for recovery? You, you work on getting optimal sleep. Is there anything else you do, massages, cryo chamber, anything like that? I, um, I I love and have been impressed with the research on rolling, on foam rolling. Foam rolling, sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm, and I've been really impressed with, with, you know, one thing that CrossFit stresses is mobility, which I never did before I started right, CrossFit. Right. I mean, I a little bit of stretching, like touch my toes, that was it. But I wasn't doing these full mobility. And I had, when I started CrossFit, I had no range of motion in my shoulders. I just, you know, touched my toes, but I never did any shoulder stretches. So I do a lot of mobility work, um, and uh, it has helped unbelievably like i when i first started i couldn't squat down to the ground and now easy i could just sit in that position and i think that's so important with aging this the, mm-hmm. to keep your mobility and flexibility and to do resistance training to build up your bones is just vital for aging process yeah when you start losing your mobility you're you you feel like you're in a rapidly aging state you just feel like you have old man pains all the time yeah, I see Get my up. Oh, you're just making oh sound every time you're shifting you all to the left. Your hips up are high <laughs> on the right. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. Look like the end of a karate movie. You know, everything's just leaning over. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey man, it's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot for spending the time. And people can find your book, Proteinaholic: How Our Obsession with Meat Is Killing Us and What We Can Do About It, at Amazon.com, at Barnes and Noble. And do you have a website for people to check out? Well, people can follow me at Dr. Garth on Facebook. Okay. Uh, or Dr. Garth Davis on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and uh, I usually will post about, you know, the different research and stuff I come across that has to do with nutrition and exercise. Alrighty. Cool. Okay, folks, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. That was another great episode. Check out Dr. Davis's book, Proteinaholic, over on Amazon.com. You can pick up a copy today. Check out some of his interviews on YouTube, lectures as well. And also make sure to check us out. Use that coupon code LLA. Go get 10% off the best nutrition supplements money can buy at MikeMahler.com. Tis the season to get rid of bitch tits or get a few bottles of EC. <laughs> tired of being tired all the time? Get a few <laughs> bottles of red. You know, I've had quite a few women email me and say that they've noticed a big increase in sex drive since taking red. And that doesn't surprise me because maca has really strong properties that help women with balancing progesterone and estrogen. And getting that balance in order really helps women with libido and energy. So a lot of you guys out there who are 
are tired of having a drought in your house, go ahead and pick up a few <laughs> bottles of red for you and your significant other. So there you go. Use that coupon code LLA, get 10% off the best products. And it's funny, I'll get people emailing me going, yeah, you know, I decided to buy a bottle of your stuff to support the show. It's like, well, it's not a donation, <laughs> buddy. We're getting, come on, you know, come on. We have another, we have another page for that. It's called Patreon. Okay. <laughs> it's like, I'm glad you're supporting the show, but it's not like you're getting nothing in return. You're getting the best <laughs> supplement money can buy. So don't act like it's a charity. Supporting you and your love life, to mind your health, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you're getting a discount on the best products out there. So enjoy. <laughs> oh man, so yeah, so. <laughs> oh man, if you guys can see some of the emails that we receive and some of the private messages, and oh my gosh, like we should just compile that and make a book. <laughs> some some of the feedback is talk about too much information. Like one guy emailed me, he's like, "Man, this stuff red is awesome. My energy is going up." And he's like, "I don't know if it's just me, but..." But, you know, I noticed that my loads are way bigger when I (laughs) – he's not talking about number two. (laughs) And I was like, that's great. Uh, Okay. All right. (laughs) I'll make sure to post that on my Facebook account. A lot of people want to hear about that. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> so on that note, yeah, so you can hop over to NewWarriorTraining.com as well and use that same coupon code, get 10% off all my products over there as well. Now, certain things are not going to help you with that certain load right there, <laughs> but there are some products that can help you load up and get better with your training as well, like my body weight training DVD, uh, the weight management program. And you can not load up so much on coffee, but you can load up on some good coffee. In which won't take that much. So you want to have four or five cups because you're not feeling anything or not tasting anything. Yeah, which will help with loads. Exactly. A different load. <laughs> so it'll so help, you, help you unload, we should say. <laughs> help you load up a certain porcelain bowl as well. Fill it right up to the top. So, you know, you can get your Cheria door while you're over there, man. So you can get better tasting coffee and tea. All right. So other than that, now for those that want to donate, Beyond just buying our products, you can head over to patreon.com slash LLA podcast, become a monthly supporter of the show. And then you can send that like, hey, man, hey, I supported you guys by going to Patreon. Then we'll say, awesome. Thank you. Okay, and, so and why wouldn't you want to donate? Exactly. <laughs> Don't you want to feel good about yourself? You know? <laughs> Don't you want to feel the, the karmic exchange of, hey, you're getting great information and you feel obligated to give something back? <laughs> exactly. About so, giving back to your community. You're part of the LLA community. Exactly. And don't even think about emailing us and recommending guests if you don't support the show. Because those get those those get deleted upon receipt. <laughs> or we, we kind of we, we they tend to become let's just say fodder for our humor. Okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, so just think about that before you hit that send button. Like, wait a minute, I'm making suggestions, but what have I done? <laughs> yeah, the first the first thing I do is run your name through my database. Yep. If you've ever purchased anything from me, it's about then one he second. Me, and he reaches out to me, like, and, I'm, and I check, I'm like, nope. Now look at the Patreon list, like, nope. <laughs> also, I mean, when, when it comes to strength coaches, and we love getting strength coaches on, of course, I mean, that's always going to be a strong cornerstone of the show. But how much of the last strength coach's information did you apply <laughs> that you feel that you need to go back into the reservoir for more? Exactly. Hey, bring him back on again. Like, have you done any of the things that he talked <laughs> yeah, about exactly. this, on this episode? <laughs> hey, bring back right. Christian Thibodeau. Like, have you ran one sprint since he started? Right. Till, since he I, wa- I want to get I want to get emails from twenty people who said they tried doing a few sprints before deadlifting or heavy presses, and they they, they noticed a nice benefit. Exactly. Now, don't just start making up stuff now so you can make a suggestion. Because <laughs> <laughs> we got a way of quantifying if this if you're telling the truth. Okay, so yeah, it's called to get over. <laughs> 
So, yeah, other than that, folks, um, hey, continue to share the show, rate the show, rate us and review us over at iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, YouTube, and keep those comments coming over there as well. We're all over social media, folks, so, and you can help out by continuing to share and spread the love. All right. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing a review in three months on iTunes. That's not cool. Right. It's my three away from 200. Right? Yeah, Come exactly. On. We've been three away from 200 for three months. All right. <laughs> we better be at 200 by the time we get to episode 200. I can tell you that much. By the time UFC 200 comes around, we there better be at 200. <laughs> exactly. Videos, all right. For the three-year anniversary of the show, which that gives you about a month, people. Okay. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. <laughs> All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this week because Skype is saying get the hell off of here because this is continuing to screw with us. So we're just going to take his advice and we're out of here. So we'll catch you on the next show, folks. Take care. All right. Take care, everyone.